0: Hey, everybody, this is Brian Scott, host of the Injured List podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, don't forget, we became a brand ambassador for SeatGeek. So shout out to them for sponsoring the podcast. What is SeatGeek, you ask? Well, they're a ticket app that takes confusion out of buying tickets. They put a 0 to 10 score on each ticket. So you know if you're getting a good or bad deal. Green good, red bad. My viewers get $20 off their first ticket purchase with my code, Injured InjuredListPod. So download the app. You can find it in the link in my description. And remember my code, InjuredListPod, to get $20 off your first SeatGeek order. And that can be to the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, Coca-Cola 600, Major League Baseball, or an upcoming NFL football game It's right around the corner, you know. Great time of year to go ahead and get the tickets to that event you've been dying to go to. Use my code, InjuredListPod, using the SeatGeek app. All right. It's been a minute since I've uh, had a guest on the podcast, but today that's all going to change as I'm bringing in a very special guest, as I always do. In fact, Robert Paler, rugby player out of Cal and Berkeley, California, who had a pretty major injury in the rugby championship finals uh, just about six years ago now. And Robert's going to come on and share his story with us. So without further ado, let's bring Robert in to chat. Well, Robert, welcome to the Injured List Podcast. Thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you for
1: having me, Brian. It's great to be here.
0: So we were just chatting a little bit before I started hitting record here, and we were chatting about rugby and everything. Um, You, you know, not probably the first sport people think of when they think of the U.S., but as you right. mentioned, it is a growing sport, one of the fastest-growing sports in the country. How did you get into rugby?
1: <laughs> yeah, very interesting, right? Um, because you know, if you look throughout most of America, Um, most people don't, I've never seen a rugby match. It's the first time they've even heard about it when you bring it up. Um, rugby kind of exists in hubs. And I would say one of those hubs is Sacramento over in Northern California, where I'm from. So I didn't even know what rugby was until I got to high school. Um, before that I played football, basketball, and baseball, you know, kind of those traditional top three American sports and eventually made my way over to Jesuit high school in Sacramento, which has the most successful rugby team in the nation. Um, I believe they're at 10 national championships, um, since 1999. So wow, have more hardware than any team in the country and, uh, and a really great culture. Um, just like everybody got a lot of participation time. You showed up and you really wanted to be there. And um, at the time when I came in my freshman year, I was playing football and basketball, and I'm just like a measly six <laughs> five. Yeah, yeah, there was a, I talking was to a guy Saturday, who's five
0: seven. You know, one sixty five from New York. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> measly six five guy over here.
1: Um, there was like a couple guys in the grade above me. One guy was uh, was like six nine and or six ten, and the other guy was six eight, and they went both went on to go play D one basketball, and I was thinking like you know i'm a competitive guy if i get on this team i want to play and um, i mean even if i make you know make it through these tryouts and my junior year when I need to go varsity and compete against these guys i feel like i'm going to ride the pine and at the same time all my buddies are playing rugby they're saying robert you have to come out and try it it's, it's a fun sport um, you have a lot of autonomy as a player and You'd be really good at it. Um, I had a knack for contact. I enjoyed physicality and thrived in physicality. So I decided to give it a shot. And I got MVP my first year playing on the JV squad. Uh, We won a national championship that year. And then um, my junior year when I got bumped up to varsity, we were runner-up in the nation. And the year after that, I was team captain MVP. And we were runner-up for um, the best team in the nation that year as well. And then eventually got tapped on the shoulder to go play for Cal. Now, um, for those listeners who don't really follow rugby, Cal is the most successful collegiate rugby program of all time. Um, total of 33 national championships. And just to put some context to how amazing that is, I think the only team at any sport, any level that has more championships than Cal is the Harlem Globetrotters and their games are (laughs) rigged. So we were doing okay. Um, I'd say that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, we were doing all right. And, uh, I just I love this I love this sport. It came in my freshman year and it's a meritocracy. You have to earn your minutes. And I spent my first year there at the bottom of the totem pole, putting my work, developing my skills, and giving the starters a good <clears throat> rep so they could perform well in the game. And then sophomore year, put in a lot of good work, you know, earned that starting spot. And uh, I was really at the top of the world, um, finding this sport that I just really took a liking to and afforded me a great athletic and academic opportunity in college.
0: Awesome. Sounds like you were really just a product of the environment. You grew up in an area where it was very popular and were able to make the transition, which seems to me probably, probably the best way to go about it. It's going from football, football to rugby. I think you definitely have to have a desire or at least the ability to absorb and dish out contact. If you're going to play. Yeah,
1: (laughs) If you're shy of contact, rugby is going to be a very tough sport for you. Yeah, Um, It's fun. I mean, it's, it's a very unique game. You look at things like the scrums and, you have eight guys binding up together against eight of the other team's guys, you know, all the way crouched down, like shins just, ab- just above the blades of grass, pushing as hard as you can. And lineouts. you know, I was 6'5", about 240 pounds when I was playing. And, you know, my specialty was to get lifted up in lineouts to go inbound balls. Like imagine, you know, like we're throwing up cheerleaders, they're throwing up, you know, yeah. big old guys <laughs> like me. Yeah, it's
0: definitely one of those um, uh, unique features of the, of the sport.
1: Oh yeah, yeah! It's so it's so neat. It's so cool. I I really took a liking to it, and it's an amazing community as well. I think because it's so niche, um, when you meet another person who plays rugby or follows the sport, you just feel like your best friends immediately, and yeah. you have know, so much to talk about. So I loved all those aspects.
0: So I grew up in the Northeast, and um, mm-hmm. there's not much rugby, I have to say, um, yeah. especially <laughs> where I'm from. I'm from a you know you play baseball, you play basketball, you start out mm-hmm. most kids start out playing soccer. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really come across rugby until I was in college in my undergrad years and -hmm. had been working as a student athletic trainer while I was pursuing my athletic training degree. Mm -hmm. And I can vividly remember that rugby was kind of like this afterthought when it came to the athletic program, when it came to sports medicine coverage, when it came to just coverage and attendance in general, um, it had a very loyal following amongst the people that participated, but it was a club sport. It wasn't a varsity sport. Mm -hmm. Um, so obviously Cal has a different tradition and a different history there. Um, so what was it like playing rugby at Cal? I mean, did you guys have all the support of the administra- uh, administration and the athletic staff and then the facilities and resources?
1: We did. It was a bona fide division one athletic experience. Um like you said, rugby programs are very different around the country. Most of them are club programs, so they're not afforded the same benefits as the other varsity sports. You know, the the regular locker rooms and training facilities, weight rooms, stuff like that. They got to go and figure that out on their own. Um, at Berkeley, it's a very different story. Over at Cal, uh, rugby is the first varsity sport. Um, I believe we started playing rugby in the year eighteen eighty six. Oh wow! So it has a very long and rich. <laughs> history to it. And, um, you know, we were, you know, in the, in the locker rooms as all the other Olympic sports and, you know, in the, in the training center, we have our own rugby field just up a bit higher up the hill from the football stadium. Um, and, you know, selling out games, great audiences, televised games. Um, it was truly the, the pinnacle of, of what I could have, could have achieved. And, and I was coming into Cal, um, you know, I was, I was recruited at other schools and for football as well. And, um, you know, going over to the Cal rugby program, you know, guy like me and others like me who are used to being the best going to Cal can in some ways be pretty intimidating for rugby because everybody on that team was the best on their high school team. Um, very much, you know, moving into that, the the pond to the ocean type analogy. And, um, but I think the thing that really got me is I knew by going to Cal, I was going to achieve my full potential in all aspects of life Mm -hmm. as an athlete, academically. I knew I wanted to pursue a business degree and uh, the hall school of business over at Berkeley is, is tremendous. Um, so it really, once I gave it a couple minutes of thought, it really became a no brainer. Um, I wanted to play rugby as long as I could and I wanted to do it at Berkeley.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I yeah. think that gets overlooked by a lot of young athletes today is thinking about life mm-hmm. after sports. And I know, um, a lot of the people I've interacted with in the podcast community and stuff, uh, certainly can attest to that. <laughs> and um, are very much aware of that message and getting it out there. So thanks mm-hmm. for pointing that out uh, to our yeah. listeners, because yeah. you, you got to think about life after sport. Um, yeah. So going into, uh, I mean, have you, had you been injured a lot uh, prior to your collegiate career? Had, had you had any type of setbacks or anything when it comes to injuries? Being that rugby is such a physical sport and you're not really wearing any <laughs> protective, yeah. uh, protective garb.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's very counterintuitive. My, at least my experience with, with rugby um, the injury that we're going to be discussing at length today certainly tipped the scales. But before that, I didn't really have a lot of injuries. I had, uh, no head trauma, so no concussions, um, no broken bones outside of uh, my nose, um, you know, which of course very exposed and, you know, in contact and it was literally just someone kind of knocking their head up and point caught on the nose and, and it broke. But, um, you know, something like that, I, I was able to play through it. Um, you know, other than that, it's just, just, like general wear and tear. Um, it's football actually where I experienced a lot more injuries. Um, I played three seasons of football with a, with a cast on having broken my hand and my wrist a couple of times. Um, just like knee issues. I was, I was mostly in blocking positions when I was playing football. So it's just like contact every single play. And, uh, you know, that can wear the body down. It's not just the games, but you know, in practices as well, or physical. And, um, you know, in football, it's kind of flesh against metals and hard plastics with those pads. And sometimes you can kind of get an invincible feeling and put yourself into a tackle that you, in a way that you maybe shouldn't have, um, rugby, there is, there's no disillusion there or illusion there, um, because there's no pads. All we have is the piece of cloth that separates our, you know, our shoulder from the, the opponent we're tackling. And, uh, you come into contact with a different mindset something like this, you know, and nobody's going to put their head down and torpedo themselves into some person because they realize that in doing that, it's going to hurt them too. They're going to pop out a shoulder and you know they're going to be dealing with the, the results of their decision. Um, so in rugby, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know what the, you know, the statistics are at large. I'd be kind of curious to see what that is, um, you know, versus a sport like football. Um, but at least in my experience, I was relatively injury free other than some, you know, kind of sprains here or there in, uh, in the sport of rugby.
0: Yeah. Um, no, it's not surprising actually to hear you say that. In fact, I can remember mm-hmm. when I was a young and, uh, just starting out my career, I had attended a national conference and mm-hmm. one of the speakers at the time <clears throat> was one of the leading neuro neurologists from like Boston university. And they were talking about mm-hmm. concussions in football and, comparing it to rugby and some of the mm. other um, sports like Australian football and whatnot. And, yeah. um, being naive and young at the time, I was like, uh, why don't, why don't we just get rid of the helmets? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and they, everybody kind of looked at me like, huh? And I'm like, no, seriously, like, aren't the helmets like the issue? Like the helmets seem to be the thing causing the problems with all these concussions. And it, in fact, it is true because like you said, you, you, you feel invincible. You have this shield of armor surrounding your cranium and you think mm-hmm. well i'm i'm fine right i can lead with my head right. i can tackle like this and i'll be okay and i'll walk out of there alive with no problems but it, in fact the 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 helmet is the thing that contributes to the concussion probably the most and and you don't see a lot of it in rugby which is shocking but it's true because yeah you you tend to be more aware of your technique and and what how you're going about doing what you need to do on the field um mm-hmm. And so that brings us to to your injury. Um, and mm-hmm. this was back now in 2017 mm-hmm. at the championship game, correct? That's right. And what year were you now in school at this point? Were I, was, you... I was a
1: sophomore. sophomore. So second, year, yeah.
0: second year. And um, yeah. I've watched the video myself. Explain to our listeners and our viewers, though, um, I'm not really understanding of the maneuver and the actual mm-hmm. rule that was potentially broken or was broken here during this particular play that you got injured. Can you just describe a little bit more about how that worked?
1: Definitely. So it's even important to point out just how immense of a day this was for me. Like you stated, it's the national championship game. We were fighting for our 31st national championship on that point. At that time, it was my first collegiate rugby national championship that I had competed in. Um, it's a real day of legacy, you know, as an athlete, when you're a national, when you win a national championship, you're not just a national champion for that day, you're a national champion for the rest of your life. Um, and I came into that day with full realization of that and, an extreme excitement for the game. Um, our opponent on that day was Arkansas state. Now I'm fairly confident that they've never won a national championship before. I don't even know if they've ever competed for a national championship to that point. So, we came in there with very much a bend there, done that kind of approach. We dissected lots of game film. We knew what their strengths were and what we were going to look out for. We knew their weaknesses and how we were going to exploit them. It was very early on in this game, about a minute and a half into it, that uh, Arkansas State committed a penalty. So, we decided to do what's called kicking in, into, a t- into touch. So, we kick it out of bounds and have that point where the, where the ball crosses that out of bounds line. Were awarded what's called a line out, which is essentially an inbounds. One of those situations, like I was talking about earlier, where we're lifting guys up into the air to go secure the ball. And for us, it was an obvious mauling situation. Now, for those who don't know the language of rugby, a maul is when the group of bigger guys come together and start pushing to advance the ball. The defense's job is to come straight in and stop us from pushing forward. And this is the boiler, you know, that's where the big guys thrived. And I was a big guy. Like I said, six five, about two hundred forty pounds. I mean, I was on that field to move people, just moving people that don't want to be moved. And we're five meters out from scoring. I mean, I am practically drooling here on the field, thinking, "Let's go, Robert, drag right this thing in." And as I'm doing this, the opposing players they start making this slew of illegal moves, and the referee's not calling anything. So, at first, three players enter in from the side, which are all infractions and in rugby things you're not allowed to do, but the ref's not calling it. And they're number eight, he binds me in a headlock. So he's got my chin pinned down to my chest. Now, normally in rugby, this is an automatic yellow or red card and immediate suspension from the game. Oh, wow. um, but the ref wasn't calling it at the same time is also kind of hooking my leg up. So I can't keep it in the ground and keep driving. That's, that's another penalty as well. That was not called. Um, and I think as an athlete in a situation like this, you kind of have two courses of action. Um, one is, You just stand up and throw your arms out to the side and look at the ref and say, what's going on? Are you going to call this? Or you keep moving forward. And I chose the latter. I kept my shoulder level down. I kept my legs pumping. And as I do that, their number six chops me down by my legs. I start going down. That arm lock around my neck continues to improve. I can't get my head up. Top of my head made impact with the ground. My body kept going forward. So my nose slammed against my chest. And I just felt this god-awful crunch in my neck and immediately just poof like i couldn't move anything i couldn't feel anything i was just lying there on my chest um feeling completely disconnected from my body like i was just thrust into my worst nightmare and uh, there was no escaping it
0: had you lost consciousness at all
1: i was completely conscious the entire time the entire yeah time. very very aware of what had happened to i had seen um, stories of stuffing like this happening before, you know, on sports center specials or on YouTube, stuff like that. And, uh, actually the, um, the incident that came up into my mind was that of Eric LeGrand from Rutgers football. Okay. I don't know know if, yeah. Have you seen Uh, his story? not,
0: Not as familiar with that, but I do remember it.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, a special teams football player, I believe he was on the kickoff side and, um, made contact, um, with, you know, kind of his head down to sort of a miss, a mistimed fluke and, um, you know, paralyzed from the neck down horrible prognosis. And, um, you know, while Eric's spirit is amazing, he still deals with a lot of, uh, a lot of mobility challenges as well. And, um, and I was thinking, Oh my gosh, like it's over. Um, I mean, am, am I ever going to be able to play rugby again? Is what I was first thinking, because that was my passion and purpose in life um and for that to be in jeopardy was sickening to me but i'm thinking way further than that of course am i ever going to be able to go to school again am i ever going to be able to feed myself again i kind of envisioned a future where maybe i would just be sitting inside my whole life kind of looking out a window as my mom helps me and spoon feeds me and then one day she dies and some i have to find caretakers just sort of help me survive there's no real life to that it's just pure survival. I was, I was scared. Like I can't even explain.
0: Well, all this is like literally running through your head. Like I, I can imagine. Immediately. Yeah.
1: M- yeah. Immediately. And my turn. my, uh, the training staff runs out there onto the field. Um, here's something that I think is just unbelievable. Just asinine is they didn't even stop play. So yeah, I, I was that. lying yeah. there. Oh man. I was screaming, which wasn't very loud granted because my diaphragm was mostly paralyzed. Um, but as loud as I could just broke my neck, just, just like, ah, like just anything I could and in complete panic, um, the training staff comes over and you know, Rob, what happened? And I said, I broke my neck and they look at each other kind of over me and said, he thinks he broke his neck. Um, but at that time we didn't have much to do to sort of assess the situation. The referee was not stopping play, um, which I think is a very poor move. And, uh, it was just when we score that, that a stoppage in play could finally be had. I didn't even
0: realize that that's crazy. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. not yeah. not it not not good. No. So so you you kind of touched on my my next question was going to be like, were you having any difficulty breathing with
1: your respirations? It was very short breaths. Yeah. Um, I wasn't able to, you know, fully inhale or fully exhale. I was kind of in between that point in the entire time, and also because my sensation was lost essentially from the collarbone down. Um, I couldn't really tell where my breath was like when i was fully inhaled or exhaled i would just sort of be talking and then i would just run out of breath and yeah okay time to breathe again um just getting trying to get used to this body that i did not yeah that recognize. that connection it's was disrupted obviously yeah, yeah yeah and
0: so mm-hmm. when they got you stabilized they got you off mm-hmm. the field uh obviously rushed you to the hospital mm-hmm. um what, do you remember exactly what they diagnosed you with? What type of injury? Mm-hmm. So I mean, we, we first, hear, you know, para, 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 paralyzed, we hear spinal cord, but we, we don't always know the exact injury. Do you remember? Yeah. So
1: initially, um, you know, I started, asking, you know, I'm like, I remember getting, they roll me over, I get onto a green you know, getting moved off the field and like, I wanted so badly to get that um, thumbs up. It's kind of a you know a common thing in sports for when someone's going up field, give that thumbs up. I wanted to do so badly, I just couldn't do it. Couldn't move my arm or hand fingers at all, and I'm thinking this is really bad. And, you know, I get into the um, the ambulance, and there was an EMT there, kind of talking to me. Okay, we're going to get you over to the hospital. It's a great hospital. We're going to do some medical imaging, and then we're going to you know see what's going on here, um, because you know we were of course holding out hope that it was some extreme stinger or something like that, that would, uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be walking out of those hospital doors the day later and celebrating with my teammates like I should have. And, um, so we get in there, they cut my, my Jersey and my shorts and my socks off of me. And, um, we do a series of uh, medical imaging. We did an X-ray, we did a CT scan. I was in an MRI for a little over two and a half hours. Uh, talk about claustrophobia. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I get out and my, uh, my neurologist comes over, um, just bad look on his face, like immediately. And he, he was just very, uh, very frank. He said, uh, Robert, what happened to you, uh, is bad, uh, really bad. And the reality is you'll never walk again. Uh, you'll never move your hands and we're going to do our best so you can do something like pick up a piece of pizza, like feed yourself again. Um, and, uh, you know, in situations like this, I think he was just really frustrated. I think he was sickened to see this young, vibrant, physical, 20-year-old young man having his life completely changed uh, because of a game. And, uh, and he was kind of saying that. He was like, you know, the sport of rugby is a, a high-end sport and stuff like this just happens. And I, I think inadvertently he was sort of taking those frustrations out on me. Um, and he had my best interest in mind. You know, he was, uh, he was trying not to give me false hope. Yeah. Um, but what I think is just as bad, if not worse, and what a lot of people would interpret in a situation like that is false hopelessness. I mean, just think yeah. if I took his word as fact and was like, I'm doomed. I'll be lucky if I can feed myself. That's not going to get me up in the morning. And that's thats not a life that I want to live. Um, yeah, we a little, certainly a little more empathy honest.
0: probably would have <laughs> It would have gone situation. a long way.
1: Yeah. yeah, it certainly would have. Um, you know, I, I, if I really like internalized what he told me, I, I wouldn't be on this call today. I don't even know yeah. if I would have survived that initial period because yeah. I got pneumonia, um, but I couldn't barely breathe and I couldn't swallow anything. I mean, it's just unbelievable um, to continue on that point of false hope and hopelessness because I think this is very relevant for this audience. Um, you, have to, you have to sometimes deliver news um, I eventually was transported over to a hospital outside of Denver, Colorado called Craig Hospital, and they had a perfect approach because they said, Robert, yes, what happened to you is very difficult, and, um, and we'll be honest, the, the statistics are that this injury is, is chronic and severe, but we don't know where you're going to progress from here. I mean, you might walk out of these doors one day, and you very well might not but we're going to guarantee you that we will give you everything that modern science and medicine has to optimize this recovery we're, you have the full strength and support of our team. So that was just the perfect response. Yeah, and awesome. what I recommend anybody use when they have to, when they have to deliver difficult news to someone, um, you know, I mean, if it would be one thing, you know, if I lost an arm and I was asking if I was going to regrow my arm, <laughs> but there was a chance yeah. that I could, that I could have a recovery and a good one and um and they were right they didn't know yeah. but they knew that they were going to help me and that was just like the just the right touch yeah um, to where i had i had a very realistic hope ahead of me to where i knew i'm in a difficult situation right now i was very realistic about that um but uh i know the only thing that's going to potentially change my outcome is if i give a full effort and uh and i did that yeah
0: great that's awesome mm-hmm. uh, um you took it you took it well that's for sure yeah. um yeah. by 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 your story there one mm-hmm. thing i always am con- cognizant of and try to <clears throat> tell my younger colleagues and those I've helped train throughout the years is to, to always remember that medicine in and of itself is not a perfect science. There's a mm-hmm. lot of imperfections within it. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of things we don't know and we may never know. And as mm-hmm. clinicians, we are infallible or we're not infallible. Like we will make mistakes. We will often mm-hmm. um, tell people the wrong thing or not get it right. And uh, if you keep that in your mindset throughout your career, uh, then you won't, you'll be a great clinician and people will respect you and patients will really appreciate your, your, your training and your care for them. And Mm -hmm. so I, I always try to reiterate that to my colleagues and, and those younger people that I mentor sometimes. Um, And that's a classic example of that. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't know, right. He's seeing you for the first time. He's, he's, he's purely, making comments based off of your scans and your you know the 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 his experiences but you know mm-hmm. if you delve probably deeper into the science and deeper into the statistics and you talk to people at the other facility like you went to in Denver um they might have a different outlook and a different perspective on things and so you know they've probably seen a lot more people bounce back that they never thought could and yeah. and that's why they have that mindset because they've come to the realization through experience that listen, we, we don't know until we know, right. We don't, we won't know until we see what he can do. That's um, right. My, so. my doctor
1: said that he was like, I've been wrong too many times. Yeah. Um, so I just, uh, yeah, I always try to share that message every time that, that I can um, yeah. because yeah. I just can't tell you how many people I've spoken to with, with injuries like mine, uh, where they get that bleak prognosis yeah. and uh, you know, some people, it just eats at them for months or years of their life. And there's some people, you know, who are able to block that out and do what they need to do to, to keep moving forward. Yeah. Um. But uh, there's there's a the right way to do it.
0: Yeah. For sure. I I I I hate when patients say, well, will I ever do this?" Or like, I say, I, I never say never. Yeah. Like, I, I can't answer right. that question the way you've phrased it. Right. <laughs> for, <laughs> for that reason, but so okay. so now you did you have spinal cord transection? Did you have spinal cord contusion? Like, what did they mm-hmm. what did they actually say? mechanically or structurally happened
1: yeah good point I forgot to I forgot to leave that's okay I kind of
0: interrupted you so
1: (laughs) (laughs) no no worries um so what happened um the result of my injury was hyperflexion um Mm -hmm. that that pressure in my head going down to my uh to my chest which is a
0: common mechanism for spinal cord Mm -hmm. injuries and one of the big reasons why in youth football we always tell them you got to tackle with your head up do yes. not come in with your head down. And even you see it a lot in the NFL, even to today, it drives me crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, that's what happened to me as a result of being forced into that position. Yeah. And um, so the, under that pressure, the disc in between my C5-6 vertebrae ruptured into my spinal cord. And I had some fracturing on my C5 and my C6 vertebrae. Um, and a little bit of the, the s- damage from swelling had crept up to my C4, just a little bit. Um so at that time, in the beginning, it was sort of just spinal shock um, with not being able to move my arms really at all or feel anything at all. Um, the typical C5-6 injury is going to present as you have some strength in the shoulders so you can move your arms up like that. You have strength in the biceps and your wrist extensors, um, but you have nothing in your triceps, nothing in your uh, wrist flexors, nothing in terms of finger dexterity, and then from about the chest down, so the majority of your torso. Um, no, no volitional control, uh, nor feeling as well. And, uh, and I eventually over the course of a few hours started to present theirs, uh, what they classify as an Asia B spinal cord injury. So I had deep pressure sensation everywhere in my body eventually. So you could have put a knife in my leg and it wouldn't hurt, but I would say, yeah there's something there. And with these injuries, things become very relative. And relatively, that was a great sign. Um, and that opened up a lot of potential for me in the future. Um, and and looking at my scans, the uh the nerves which control motor function were much more damaged than the nerves which control sensory function. Um, so that's kind of how I, I presented in the in the beginning. And, uh, through that, they decided to, uh, they gave me the option to go into a spinal fusion surgery, um, as least invasive as we could, but my doctor told me this is a potentially life-threatening surgery. My body was already spiking temperatures up to 105 degrees internally. I assume just under the, my nervous system, yeah. under the shock of what had it
0: just trauma. Yeah,
1: that's just, yeah, that's what I assume. And then, um, so, you know, my body was very deconditioned and, um, and, you know, there's a lot of important real estate right here. Um, they they performed the surgery through the front, moving the esophagus over to be able to operate on the spinal cord. Um, he told me I had about an hour to make my uh, decision. And, what was
0: the uh, alternative,
1: though? The alternative probably would have been a halo. And uh, oh, okay. so, we're, yeah, they would, you know, squirrel some screws into my, my head to fix my head into position to see if there could be some natural healing. Um, I met some people who did elect to take that route because they had fracturing, say, like, c2 all the way down to like c7 so uh with a fusion like that of course they would have no range of motion in in their neck hardly at all um for me you know i i spoiler alert i elected to go for the fusion and um you know i have i have essentially full range of motion in my neck um but uh, you know of course that life-threatening portion of it was very uh very scary to me and um so i decided to call my religious advisor at that point and uh, he gave me this piece of advice that just really, uh, really helped me. It gave me a lot of hope in what should have just been a completely hopeless situation. And uh, he said, Robert, throughout this journey, there's going to be a lot of things that you just can't control. But the one thing you can control is your mindset. So your positivity, your ambition, your willingness to wake up every day and fight this is up to you. And this injury can't take that away from you. And no truer words have been spoken. And uh, those words really gave me a lot that, yes, I couldn't control what happened to me on that day. And I couldn't control the circumstances that happened to me on that day forward. None of us can. I don't think success in life is determined by the circumstances that happen to us, but rather the way that we respond to those circumstances. And just having that be the number one piece, the first piece of advice that I heard, I think was the most critical piece of advice that I could have heard in that moment. And it gave me a lot, you know, it gave me the strength to be able to block out a lot of those emotions that I just couldn't deal with at that point. I would eventually, but not when I needed to make that decision and uh, decide what was best for me. And I was just thinking, I can't have any regrets. I I need to go into the surgery. Um, That's what I did. This is the Injured List Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Are you interested in being a guest on the show? Or do you know someone who would make a good guest? Want Brian Scott to be on your show? If so, share the podcast with your friends or drop us a line and we will get back to you right away. Email us at theinjuredlist411 at gmail.com or visit our website at www.theinjuredlist.com. You're listening to the Injured List Podcast with your host, Brian Scott. Your go-to resource for all sport injury-related topics. For show notes and other resources, visit TheInjuredList.com. Now, back to the show.
0: So you, you get through the surgery. You, I, 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 obviously, you had some major issues afterwards, and I think that's the thing that people mm-hmm. really sometimes overlook. <clears throat> and, and this is sometimes unavoidable with, with a lot of major surgeries, not just spinal cord surgeries. Um, You know, you lose some of that respiratory drive, you're recovering, you're under a lot of anesthesia during the procedure. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of things that your body has to recoup and recover from. Um, And just the overall stress of the surgical procedure can cause a lot of issues. Lungs Mm -hmm. being the first one that typically gets affected. Um, mm-hmm. followed closely by uh, the vas- cardiovascular system. So there's a lot of things that could potentially go wrong. You had you had a few of those things happen, <laughs> to say <Probably>. the least. <laughs> yeah. um, but you, you made it through, you got out. How long were you in the hospital before you were able to get out and start like really working on your recovery and your rehab?
1: Yeah, I was, um, gosh, it, that kind of acute stage for me probably lasted about three to three and a half weeks when I was, uh, really doing a lot of respiratory treatment, um, regaining my ability to swallow. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, initially I was, you know, just incredibly tired, um, but I was doing okay. I, yeah. uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really have an, a desire to eat and, you know, I of course I had an IV in for, for hydration. Um, and then it was, uh, you know, maybe the, the second day after, you know, kind of the drugs of the surgery have worn off that I, you know, kind of had an appetite and, tried to eat and um, and it wouldn't go all the way down. It was kind of just like stuck in my windpipe. And, you know, so immediately I started trying to, to cough it out. Um, but my diaphragm was mostly paralyzed. So as much as I would try, it was nothing more than a soft breath. Yeah. Um, so we did what they call a quad cough, kind of putting the hands on my diaphragm, pushing down as I give an effort as well. Um, but I realized very quickly, oh, this, this food is not going down. And they said that it was due to the swelling in my neck. You might know what it's called. I don't. But the flap which covers your uh, your windpipe when you swallow, yeah, it's kind of getting stuck under that uh, under that swelling. Um, so it was essentially, you know, an, an open uh, opening to to the lung,
0: yeah. and
1: uh, it was very scary for me to eat. So we put a a, very uh, dangerous too.
0: That's how you, that's how um, people aspirate and get really seriously
1: right. <laughs> and uh, and so we put a. Tube up my nose and down to my stomach, and that took three days to get in there. Because remember, I broke my nose (laughs) so many times playing rugby. I mean, very painful experience, but uh, one of those things where it's like control your mindset, Robert. Um, If you, you know, if you want to get through this and you want to have to and you want to forego having to do a minor minor surgical procedure with having that tube straight to your uh, your stomach, then uh, you just got to muscle down and and make this happen. And so eventually, after three days, it got in. And, uh, you know, I could start having some nutrition, but my body was shedding weight, like crazy, lost 60 pounds yeah. that first month. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that was muscle, you know, I, sure. I had trained a lot before that and I was completely immobile, um, in that hospital bed. And, uh, you know, I was doing everything I could with that feeding tube to get in 1500 calories at least because, um, because with my breathing treatments, we couldn't, it, it would actually went down to my upper intestine. We couldn't have you know, someone pushing down on my chest like that with, uh, with all that in my body, yeah. um, or else I would probably regurgitate it. And, uh, so I was really losing weight fast, just kind of looking whenever I saw myself in the mirror, just thinking, oh my goodness, what's happening. And, um, and the pneumonia was, uh, was, was life-threatening. Um, I th- it was like with probably the day two or three that I started to develop a cough, um, that's producing phlegm. And uh, eventually they took some cultures and, and found out that it was aspiration pneumonia, um, potentially brought on by my swallowing problems. Potentially they even said, you know, maybe while you were on the ground, you got a piece of turf that went into your lung, or maybe there was a bug on the ventilator during your surgery. Um, but this is very severe, Robert. And uh, you know, we're going to put you through a treatment schedule of respiratory therapy every three hours. Um, and, Amy, uh, really? I mean, yeah, that thing tested me like I've never been tested before. Um, I really didn't sleep. I mean, it was every three hours I would have a respiratory treatment. Those would uh, be a minimum of 30 minutes long, maximum of three hours long in which I would roll straight into my next one. Every two hours, somebody would come in and turn me in my hospital bed. So I didn't develop a skin sore and every one hour my vitals would be checked. And so I'd be lucky to squeeze in like a 20 minute nap here or there. Yeah. Uh, I was just tired. Like I, I can't even explain um, I mean, it really felt like death was just with me in that room waiting for me to quit. Um, but I wouldn't quit um, because I had a goal. And my goal was to you know, get out of that acute environment and get into a, a rehab setting uh, where I could I could start challenging my nervous system to regain some mobility. And in those moments when respiratory therapist comes in and it's 2 a.m. and you're tired as heck and they say, hey, we got to start um, working on your lungs. Uh, the answer was all right. Let's do it again, do it again, do it again. Because I had a goal and that's yeah. what it took.
0: Different. It's kind of crazy, hey, how fast that deconditioning sets in and that muscle wasting occurs, right? And, mm-hmm. I, you know, even in a healthy person who's not active and stops training, it it occurs super quick. And mm-hmm. in order to gain all that strength and mass back takes forever. Now, yeah. couple that with a spine injury, man, I can't even imagine what, what you must have been thinking and
1: looking at yourself like, what?
0: Um, yeah. yeah, and then total
1: identity shift really, I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, that was something that, that I think anybody has a hard time dealing with as athletes, um, enduring sports injuries is identity shift, yeah. um, where, you know, you're a very active person and, you know, for more, most sports injuries, there's going to be a rehabilitative process and then you can go retake the, the court or field or pool, you know, whatever your surface you're playing on. Um, you know, but for me, that, I knew that the sport was gone forever. And uh, you know, I, I was worried that my my body had changed forever. You know, it's the first time wondering, kind of saw the ridges in my sternum, and um, you know, I always had like big, strong legs, as most rugby players do, and look down, and they're just wasting away. Um, that was a that was a difficult identity shift yeah. to to get over to you know, just be able to look in the mirror and uh, you know, be be proud of your proud of your body, proud of who you are. Yeah, um, it took a long time. Yeah,
0: I'm sure it did. Mm -hmm. And and it's amazing too, how you go from like that acute care setting, the hospital setting to the rehab setting, how that Mm -hmm. can then kind of flip the script a little bit and get you like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm in a different environment. There's different mentality here, different goals now that I'm working towards. Mm -hmm. So that can be a beneficial thing. I try to explain that to a lot of patients I've encountered throughout my career who are insistent on staying in the hospital. I'm like, you do not want to be here. Trust me. (laughs) You want to get out and get to rehab as fast as you can. (laughs) Believe me when I tell you that speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be hard sometimes to, to get people to go or you're know, them and make them feel safe and ready to start that next chapter as part of their rehab. So, um, yeah. So, so you did a lot of the therapy sessions. Did you do it at the facility in Denver? I'm assuming you got probably some top notch care in one of the probably more advanced places in the country for spine care and rehab. Mm-hmm. Was that at the same facility in Denver?
1: It was. Okay. So, um, Attached to the hospital, both where I was in Santa Clara. Well, Santa Clara, you know they have they have areas of acute care like where I was, and they did have a spinal cord injury rehabilitation center um, where they had inpatient and outpatient um, folks coming in to to work on their recoveries. And uh, I got to do a little bit of, of work there. I'm a the public hospital, so uh, I think it was about three hours of rehab that I was getting a day with a maximum stay of like a month for inpatient, um, which blew my mind. Um, because I was thinking, oh, this is going to take a lot longer than a month. Uh, you know, I need, I need sustained care here. You know, I'm just trying to be able to breathe right now or eat right now. And that's eating into my overall stay. This isn't good. Um, and I eventually was, uh, was turned on to Craig hospital by, by some other people who had, had spinal cord injuries or, you know, a loved one had and they said you need you need to seriously consider going over to, to, to Denver at Craig. Um, they they are able to handle some of that acute care um, if need be, but if there's a you know something like a pneumonia case like mine or you know skin infection something like that, um, they transfer you out. They were very focused on that uh, rehabilitative process, and I loved it, um, including from my PT to OT to, um, a little bit of speech therapy stuff that I had to do in the beginning with my swallowing, um, to like adapt, like finding technology that would assist me with my injury to education on spinal cord injuries and all those unseen things that, um, people like me have to deal with. It was about eight to nine hours, um, was my schedule every day, excluding weekends. Um, I remember when I talked to my doctors and my whole team, they had a very team-based approach there, um, that, uh, I was, I was saying, like, I didn't come out here to Denver to just look at the Rocky Mountains and, you know, go on vacation. I came here to get better. Uh, so work me harder than you've ever worked anybody before. Please just load my schedule up. And uh, When you say jump, I'll say how high. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful environment. These people, uh, they really believed in me. They were really rooting for me. We were, of course, very realistic about where I was. And uh, in every moment we were just using everything that I could to be independent. Independence was the goal here. Um, But of course, always hoping for, hoping for more. And when those, uh, those new movements started to show up and they did, uh, I mean, we just ran with it and uh, we, we really went for it. Just always um, bending kind of conventional rehabilitative techniques to what personalized me most. And, uh, those people, they just wake up and they change lives every single day, yeah. and, uh, and they certainly change mine.
0: Well, I can, I can speak for them. They might not say this, but and I am a little biased. But uh, <laughs> athletes, athletes, are, most of the time are some of our favorite patients to work with. Mm-hmm. They usually are more, most compliant, and they're usually mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the more successful ones because they usually are very driven. Um, so mm-hmm. that whole athlete mentality uh, really does uh, allow them to bounce back from such severe injuries like yourself. Um, Certainly. There's no doubt, no doubt about that.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: where are you at now? Here, here we are, you know, almost six years later, um, right? Like almost to the day, right? Like, um, Yeah, <laughs> May, May 6th yeah. was the 6th
1: anniversary. Just, just so, the after. So, so so, how so
0: are you doing? Um, what is like, your, I'm assuming you're still doing some therapy because for something mm-hmm. like this, the therapy pretty much never ends, um, mm-hmm. as our listeners might not understand. So, so to take us through a typical day now, you know, six years later, I know you're, you've got yeah. a lot going on, uh, not both with your recovery, but also professionally and personally. So mm-hmm. fill us in.
1: Yeah, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, just to, just to kind of go through that ride of how we even got here today, my process. So at Craig Hospital, I started getting some twitches here and there, twitching a the finger, twitching a toe, um, to where, you know, I could lift my legs, start taking some steps. So. Eventually, when I left that hospital, I spent about 11 and a half months in that clinical environment every day. Um, I was able to stand up out of my wheelchair and my walker with assistance, and I walked over the hospital doors. Um, Of course, immense accomplishment for me, and uh, just had a tremendous recovery in my upper body. Now, I hardly even think about uh, about my upper body, uh, which is an immense, immense blessing. And uh, So after that, I returned back to UC Berkeley about a year after my injury. And, uh, I did two years of rehabilitation, uh, with my rugby coach, um, Tom Billups, the associate head coach of Cal rugby and our head strength and conditioning coach. And, uh, we were, we were in the gym with all of the other athletes as I was, uh, you know, working on walking and standing up and balancing and moving side to side and moving backwards and, um, strengthening, you know, just kind of traditional muscle strengthening and in ways that we had done for, um, for my trunk and, uh, for my scapular muscles as well. And, um, and then when I graduated from Cal, I then moved from a platform walker where my elbows were being rested onto it all the way down to, you know, your standard walker. Um, and then, uh, I could, I, I think my max at that time was 200 yards that I could walk when I graduated. Nice. Um, so now, um, I do, I do mostly home therapy, um, because the name of the game with these injuries is at least in my view, reps, the more you walk, the stronger you get, and the stronger you get, the more you can walk. And the more you stand up, the stronger you get, the stronger you get, the more you can, you can stand up. And, um, that's the, so that's the approach that I've taken. It's, uh, you know, I, I do my best to track my results of each workout. Um, because I think one of the most difficult things about any rehabilitative process is you're your own pace setter. It's not like, you know, when you're out doing conditioning with your friends and, you know, you're going a little bit faster so you can beat them, um, you're putting on a little bit more weight on the bars, you know, so you can, uh, you can hang with the strongest people in the gym. Uh, in a rehabilitative setting, it's, it's you versus yourself. And um, I, I think tracking your progress is a really good thing to where you don't ever give yourselves those excuse when, to not just like stop when things get difficult but stop when you really just can't do it anymore, or it's starting to get to an area where it could potentially hurt you or, you know, maybe put you in some sort of uh, danger. Like for me having a fall, I'm walking. Um, so that's the, that's the approach that I take. And I try to, uh, every few months go in and see some physical therapists, get those expert eyes on my body and, um, you know, see where the strength that I've built has got me and take that homework and, um, do it on my own and, it's an everyday thing. I mean, today is twenty-two hundred and ten since my injury, and I, I keep track of those days because uh, that consistency is the most important aspect of my journey, and I think I think any journey. And um, as those days add up, it's just another day to be proud of that uh, that I didn't
0: Absolutely. give up, and Absolutely. I'm never going to
1: give up. <clears throat> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great little documentary thing on your uh, LinkedIn profile, mm. which I watched <clears throat> the other day. And it's got some, I mean, I highly recommend it for those of you listening. If you want to get a little bit more behind the scenes of um, Rob's recovery and stuff, it's pretty cool. Um, well done too, by the way. Was that something that was put on by the university? Who, who uh, made that?
1: Yeah. The university That's assisted awesome. with that one. Yeah. Did yeah that was really cool.
0: because um, yeah. It was great behind the scenes stuff, which is things mm-hmm. I'm familiar with being in healthcare, but a lot of people probably aren't. And it really right. shows It really shows just how difficult the struggle it was to, to come back. And, and just yeah. about how significant the injury was. Um, Immense. There was also a phrase that you said in there, which really stuck with me and I think is awesome. And uh, I'm sure this had to come up while you were rehabbing at Cal and working alongside the current rugby players. Do you remember, you know which one I'm talking
1: about? Is it compared to what?
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I can only imagine what the other rugby guys were sitting there thinking while they're in the weight room, probably oh, yeah. disgruntled uh, after practice or weight, class, you know, a conditioning and then they look over and they see Rob over there working with coach and they're like it could be worse right <laughs>
1: it can always be worse yeah, yeah so it's, it's a great thing I
0: really I really like that
1: yeah how it came up um I was on a, a religious pilgrimage to a place called Lourdes um which is south of France and it's a place of like miraculous healing um so I was invited to go out there with a with a religious order I think it was 25,000 people that were there from all over the world and all these different things that they were dealing with and I was having conversations with people, like Robert. I have stage four cancer. I have months left to live, and uh, I look at time so differently now. And you know, I've got a you know, beautiful spouse and children who I love so much. And what I would give to be with them. Or um, there was a guy there who had ALS, and uh, um, he was he was semi ambulatory. Um, you know, he walked around with assistive devices, and you know, it wasn't the prettiest or fastest thing in the world, but he was walking. You know, his speech was very strained. Um, very positive guy, but you could tell that he was going through a lot. And, uh, I remember speaking to him as well. And, uh, it was kind of the same, you know, a similar sentiment that as time goes on, I just move less and less until my eventual reality to where I won't be able to move anything at all. And, uh, again, I have a wife and children who I love so much, like what I would give to be able to just be with them. And I look at what I was going through, um, which you know, I deal with significant challenges every day, a lot more than, than most people have to go through. Um, and, uh, and it's very chronic. And I understand this. The statistics are not on my side. Um, but my life is not in jeopardy anymore. I have so much to be grateful for. And I was, uh, I was just like having a, having a drink with, with a priest on this, on this pilgrimage. And we started talking about that whole saying, of, compared to what? um, yeah, I'm having a rough day today, but compared to what, (laughs) um, I'm really tired, but compared to what, there's a lot that I can do. There's a lot that I do have. And when we use that statement, um, I don't want us to like dismiss our challenges because that's very unhealthy when we dismiss our challenges. If we do that, it just ignores it. It'll never go away. But what that statement is meant to do is just put our challenges into perspective. It just helps us realize that what we go through is so overcomable and there's so much that we can always be grateful for. Yeah. So I, that's, that's like, I got to like tattoo that on my body. Yeah.
0: Something. It's a great, it's a great saying. It's a, it's and it like yeah. you said, it puts a lot of things in perspective.
1: Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really
0: appreciated that from that video. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you've got a lot going on, like you said, married, right. You said children, um, Business career, you're, you've become a public speaker now because of this. Um, you're also, and you got to help me with this because I'm probably going to botch it. But you're you're the executive director of the Cal program. The, the what's it called? The the it's big the C? Big Society. Yeah, the the Cal's big... Letterwinner Society. Yeah, explain that to me a little bit. I've never heard of, any, of such a thing, and it looks like it's been around forever, which is shocking. Yes, <laughs> yes,
1: um, yeah. It was established in I believe the year was 1908. Um, so another very old organization. Um, and uh, yeah, the Big C Society at first was was founded to steward the standards of winning a varsity letter at Cal. Um, so most universities in America have a letter winner society um, where there's a criteria for earning one's varsity letter letter through a playing time requirement. And um, you know, we we steward those standards, and we have uh, like alumni networking opportunities online and spotlighting videos where we show our our uh, student athlete alumni who are who are having great post-sports professional career success because every athlete eventually goes pro in something other than their sport. Um, so yeah, I've been the executive director with that for the last couple of years. And um, three months ago, got engaged to the love of my life. No kids yet, but I hope it's on the horizon. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, I'm really dedicating my life to, uh, to public speaking, to awesome. sharing this story and uh, sharing the things that have helped me overcome my challenge because my challenges are visible, but... Everybody has something they're going through. And, uh, you know, I've had a journey of overcoming physical paralysis, but I think everybody has something that paralyzes them mentally and or emotionally. There's stuff that stops all of us from being our best. And I really believe that those tools that have helped me overcome my paralysis can help everybody
0: overcome those challenges
1: they face in their lives. Nothing gives me more purpose than uh, being able to share that story and inspire others.
0: Cool. Very cool. So yeah, uh, I hear Rob's apparently. From what I've heard, he's the hot ticket on the public speaking uh, <laughs> circuit these days. So if you want Rob to come out, how would they find you, Rob? If they if they people were interested in maybe having you speak uh, at, a, at a as a lecturer or conference or something, or maybe to uh, employees or or fans, how how do they yeah. find you and get in touch with you if you're?
1: Yeah, I'd recommend looking at my website robertpaler.com. Um, it's got everything there, and social media is great as all. I kind of got a monopoly on the name Robert Paler. So there's not a a lot of, uh, if you just type in Robert Paler, it's pretty easy to find me. (laughs) Um, But I just, I appreciate every opportunity I have to be able to speak. And um, it's really just amazing to see the impact that it's left. And, you know, when this injury happened to me, I lost all my purpose in life. Um, My purpose in life was rugby. That was my passion and uh, and it wasn't coming back. Um, But when I could start sharing this story Helping people get through their challenges, helping them realize just all that they have and, and to be grateful for—it um, gave me that purpose and uh, something that was that was even much stronger um, than, uh, than than what I got playing sports. And so much so that I really wouldn't even change what happened to me. It's like how how could I? Because if I did, I would be I'd be wishing away my purpose. Um, yeah. So I just I love it, and it's just amazing to see how it's helping people.
0: Yeah, I understand that more and more as I go through life. And as I get a little older, you know, back in the day, yeah. you're younger, you don't really understand that concept of not changing something terrible that happened to you and making it different. Yeah. But in reality, it it's almost what you're here for, right? It's your purpose. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I totally get it. There was one other thing I wanted to say, and that was um thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, it it helps me share my podcast with more uh, viewers and listeners and um, hopefully get your message out. And so hopefully you can keep spreading your word and doing your thing. Um, And so for that, I'm grateful. Um, I don't profit off this at all. So um, this is just a hobby of mine and I enjoy doing it. And it's great meeting people like yourself who've been through some crazy stuff and yet come through on the upside and continue to do great things. So I do appreciate you taking the time to sit with us and talk. And um, if there's anything I can do, for Robert Paler in the future, let me know, or even for the big C. Um, I'd be happy to, to help you out with anything that you guys need help with. So I've got some projects I'm working on in the future. So I'll let you know when I get those uh, all squared away. We talked about it earlier, <laughs> but yeah. uh, as far as the podcast goes, I really do appreciate it. And um, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to say before we part ways today, uh, the microphone and the floor is yours.
1: <laughs> oh, my gratitude goes to you, Brian. I mean, I really <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to, share my story. And like I said, nothing gives me more fulfillment in my life. And, um, you gave me that opportunity today and, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And if everybody, if anybody was listening to this and inspired and had any questions, please, please, please reach out to me. I love those one-on-one conversations and, um, welcome any and all of them, but, uh, just hope that by listening to this, that all the listeners really were able to develop a strong sense of gratitude and, uh, whatever they're going through uh, to be able to put that down into perspective and just realize all those things they can do because um, this injury really taught me that every day is a gift and life can change very quickly. So just appreciate all that you have every day and use everything that you have every day because um, we're all very blessed to be here.
0: Couldn't I said it better myself? And um, I'll make sure that all your information is uh, Robert Peller's uh, links to all his websites and everything is in the um, show notes and description Um, You guys can find it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts on any of the major platforms. Uh, Once again, everybody, thank you for listening to the Interlist podcast and our special guest, Robert Peller.